You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Christmas is upon us. It's good that it cooled down and that the 95-degree weather kind of went away. That helps out a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, let's turn our Bibles over to... uh, Where are we? Acts chapter 9. We're going to finish up uh, beginning at verse 32. We will finish this chapter today, I promise you that. Um, Chapter 9 gave us the, uh, started off by giving us the conversion and the commission of Saul. He was a chosen vessel of Christ to bear his name before Gentiles and kings and Jews. And he was to um, suffer many things for the name of Christ. And uh, so we we saw him uh, begin his ministry. He began in Damascus, preaching Christ in the synagogues in uh, verse 20. He would spend three years in the Arabian desert. We talked about that last week out of Galatians chapter 1. Um, he would return to Damascus and uh, begin to minister. But the, the Jews that were there in Damascus were not real happy about Saul. They wanted to kill him. And uh, the Christians came together and they found someone that could help you know, work covertly to sneak Saul out of the city, uh, down a wall uh, in a basket. Um, next, it was off to the city of of Jerusalem, and I don't know, uh, I can imagine what Saul was thinking after all of, all of that. But uh, as he got to Jerusalem, the, uh, the Christians there were very skeptical of him. And obviously, uh, they could remember who he was uh, three years prior when he was there, how he was part of the, the hierarchy of uh, you know, the Jewish faith and how he was incarcerating Christians and how he was, you know, even going to Damascus with letters in hand from the high priest to grab some Christians there. He murdered Christians. Um, so you can understand the skepticism. But we talked about this man, Barnabas, that he would meet this man by the name of Barnabas. And this man, Barnabas, we're going to see a little bit more of him through the book of Acts, but his name means son of encouragement, and um, he, he brought Saul to the disciples there in Jerusalem, and he um, described his conversion. He didn't sell them on anything else. He, he brought them to that place they should be focused on, and that is who Jesus is and what Jesus does in our lives. And if Jesus has truly converted you, truly converted you, I mean radically converted you, then you understand the grace you received. You understand that, that you didn't deserve that. And so you're like dropping your rocks and going, man, who am I to say anyone else doesn't deserve this grace? No one is beyond the reach of Jesus. And so he, he brought that to their attention. This is, I'm telling you, the guy was, 
He's changed like us. He, he brought them to what Jesus had done in their life. And I, I thought a lot about this as it relates to the church today. And um, oftentimes I'll, I'll, I'll teach on a Sunday and, and I'll, I will personally be tested on what I taught the next, I don't know, few days. And I began to think about, so I had some trigger points, and I began to think about the last couple of years and, and, and the, the opportunity that God has given us as his kids, as the church, to be just who we are in Christ. On Wednesday night, we had our Advent service, and we were talking about, um, because we're lighting candles, and the, the candle, the flickering of the fire, I said, represents the light of God. Well, what does it mean when the Bible talks about God in reference to light, uses that as a, as a statement about God, and it talks about his character, it talks about his holiness, it talks about his purity, and, and, and that light, we are now children of the light. We talked about that, and how we're now partakers of divine nature. That light is in us. We are the reflectors of the character of God, the light of God. And every table had one candle lit. And I just said, I want you to, just as an experiment, let's hit the light. We just turned off the lights. And there was no part of darkness. The, just physiologically and spiritually through the metaphor, it was a vivid illustration of what light does when it's just light. There is no darkness that can't be and won't be conquered by that light. And so we think about, you know, what it was in order for this work of Jesus that began on the cross and his spirit now being in these followers and coming upon these followers beginning in chapter 2 at Pentecost. What was it about this work that would allow this work, what would need to happen in and through the life of these people in order for that work to still be that work today, 2,000 years later. I wonder what would have happened to Saul, as an example, if there, were, there was no Barnabas. I, I, just, I was thinking about all of this and... and I, I just thought, what a needed ministry in such a heated time with the church to stand up and fight for reconciliation among believers. What a radical, radical, huge, necessary opportunity. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says that through Christ, we've been reconciled to God, and He has given us the word. He's given us the word of reconciliation. What would have happened to Saul if there were no Barnabases? It, it's so like Jesus. What would have happened to the Samaritan woman if Jesus did not display grace to that Samaritan woman and just I don't know, fell in line with, with the trends of how Jews treated non-Jews. What would have happened with that woman? 
What would have happened with Zacchaeus or Matthew who were tax collectors? If Jesus would have just, as a Jew, fell in line with the trends and the traditions and the, the rally cry of his people, fall in line with us of his people. What would have happened to Zacchaeus and, and, and Matthew? You were putting, you know, something on the line to be different than all of the other Jews around you. But Jesus was willing to do that, and he modeled that. What would Peter, what would have become of Peter as we're going to look at his life this morning if Jesus did not lovingly pursue him after his resurrection? What if Jesus went into a different mode and went on a campaign of, of warning everybody about Peter because of what Peter did? But he lovingly, patiently worked, pursued him and worked with him to realign his life. Who knows what would have happened to Saul if there was no Barnabas to be found in the church? Who knows what would have happened to Saul if he never saw grace lived out in the church? Who knows? But Barnabas saw grace and was a beneficiary of grace, a recipient of grace, and became a dispenser of God's grace. And those that are dispensers of God's grace are those who are living under the conviction of God's grace. They are mindful of it. They are humbled by it. They are desperate for more of it. They are tapped into it. And they are becoming impacted by it and are personally experiencing the benefits of God's grace. Thus, they begin to want that and display that for others. Peter himself would say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. With Barnabas there, just, just, I'll be an at-risk person in that relationship. I, you know, I, I just see he's worth it. I'll stand with him when everybody else is questioning him and hurling insults at him. I will stand with him and I will point people to his Jesus and what Jesus has done in his life. And Saul had already been saved for maybe three years at the most. Do you think he was like arrived? Do you think that all the rough edges were off? Do you think that he was some perfect person? No, none of us are. But thank God for the Barnabases in the church that realize they are not perfect and that they are so desperately in need of God's grace and because they understand it for what it is, they just can't help but want that for others. And how do you want that for others? You display that to others. So with Barnabas talking to the church about what Jesus has done in Saul's life, Saul was accepted. Saul was accepted. And I, I would rather be on that side of it as it relates to the body of Christ. I would 
rather be advocating for what Jesus is doing in the life of imperfect people than to stand around and give excuses of why we probably should be like distant from those people. But he was accepted, not entirely. As he was in Jerusalem, the, the Hellenist, you know, they're Greek-speaking Jews. They, they didn't like Saul as he was trying to minister to him there. And they were so upset that they tried to kill him. And the church looked at this and they're like, oh, man, maybe it's best to like, it's not Saul's time to reach all of these people here. And, and I believe it was a very wise thing and loving thing that they said, why don't you go back to Tarsus for a while there? And, and, and they, they brought him to Caesarea and they put him on a boat. Um, and, and, and in that particular area, in Acts 15, we know there were churches, so it's quite possible. Saul was very busy preaching in that region. In Galatians 1, it gives us a picture of that as well. We are not going to see Saul again until Acts chapter 11, where Barnabas, once again, is going to bring him around. This is going to take place about six to seven years uh, down the road. Um, in Luke 31, Luke here summarizes the progress of the church. This is kind of where we are, and it just describes that throughout all Judea and Galilee, the north and, and outside of Jerusalem proper, and uh, Samaria, the church is marked by peace. Um, it, it, and when it says that, it's not defining, oh, it's a, a time of complacency. But no, 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 there was this, they, they were experiencing the peace of Christ. And uh, the, the church was edified. It says that the church was being built up, and that's something that happens within the church um, as we are building up one another. Um, the door of faith had opened up to the Jews in chapter 2 and to the Samaritans in chapter 8, and soon it's going to be opened up to the Gentiles in chapter 10. So it was time, you know, to really build up the church, to, to repair the church and to, to strengthen and repair the sails before you, like, are blown into the next storm. The church grew in fear and awe and reverence of the Lord as well, and it's no wonder as we see those things mark the church, the church grew, it multiplied. And again, we noted that this all happened with, with you know, Paul or Saul was not part of it. This was something that um, Jesus was doing. At this particular point in time, as maybe you're new to the study of the book of Acts, it's the, the birthing and the development of the church, how the Holy Spirit does all of this. The work thus far had been confined mostly to Jews, Jews being converted. There were some Samaritans who were half Jews that were also um, converted as well. And there were these other proselytes that were, you know, converted from Judaism into Christianity. But, but outside of like the one Ethiopian eunuch that was converted there with Philip in chapter 8, the, you might say that the, the average person being saved was, was, a, was a Jew. But all was ready now for the extension of the church to reach into a newer population. And that is what is going to take place in chapter 10. And God is going to use Peter, but before he actually is going to be used to sit down in front of the first Gentiles and see these first Gentiles 
being saved, we're going to see God do something unique in the life of Peter. So we're going to look at the life and the ministry of Peter in these closing um, verses here. The last time we saw Peter, he was in Samaria, where he and John were sent from the church to check out what God was doing through the ministry of Philip. And then they, of course, uh, left, and they were both preaching the word of God and, and presenting the gospel to various villages on the way back to Jerusalem. That's the last time we saw Peter. So we pick up in verse 32, and it says, It came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aenus, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Paul said to him, Aenus, Jesus, the Christ, heals you. Arise and make your bed. And thus he arose immediately, and all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So as Peter's out traveling around a bit as well, we see him in this city of Lydda here, the region of, of, of Judah, or excuse me, Judea. And it says that he connects with the believers there. He connects with the saints. Um, it's interesting that when the Lord commissioned Saul, when the Lord, the Lord is like sending out Peter and Philip, we might, we might know the place, but the focus is on people. You might say that when the Lord sends us out, he doesn't send us so much out to places, but to people. Remember in Luke 22, Jesus had, had told Peter, he's like, you know, you need to know that Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. When Peter had said some lame things to Jesus there, that was his response. You don't need to go to the cross kind of thing. Jesus responded, he goes, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And I wonder if that just like stuck in his head and stuck in his heart to where we see him. When he goes to a place, his focus is on people. There he finds a certain man, it says, Aeneas, and, and, and he's sick, he's bedridden, he's been paralyzed for eight years. And we know as we look at God using Peter, there are times when he was ministering to um, the masses, and sometimes he was ministering to individuals. We saw that with, um, with Jesus as well. There were times when Jesus was called to like large settings, and the crowds were so large that he would jump in a boat and pull, push off on the Sea of Galilee and, and make an amphitheater type of setting and just lift his voice and, and preach to the masses. He did that at, at Solomon's porch. Um, at the Temple Mount as well. But then there were times that we saw him very, very much with one person, a paralyzed person on a bed, Jairus' daughter, one woman that had a blood, an issue of blood, a blind man, a mute that was demon-possessed. Oftentimes, it was the masses, and then there were times it was a person. And I think that that when we look at ministry sometimes, we need to understand that whether it's one or the many, they're equally significant in God's eyes. 
Paul, as Saul will one day become Paul, and, and, and he will have large crowds as well. But as he will um, sign off oftentimes in his epistles, he'd be greeting specific individuals that he knows. In um, the, 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 the letter to the Romans, he'll sign off there. And there's eight really cool names to study. There's these people that were personally ministered to and ministered to Paul himself uh, there in, in, that, in that season. So Peter, he knew what it was like, Pentecost masses, standing in front of the Sanhedrin, preaching Christ the masses. Now we just see another side of ministry, his personal service to individuals. And again, this is a great example for all of us to follow, especially if you find yourself in front of any kind of crowd. In front of any kind of crowd. Jesus, in John chapter 21, had found Peter after he had denied him. Jesus was raised from the dead. The disciples were up at the Sea of Galilee fishing. And and Peter found them, or Jesus found them. Peter swam in. They had breakfast. Jesus pulled Peter off of the side and, and he basically called him to care for his sheep. Tend these people. And there's a lot of art over the centuries that depict Peter. And oftentimes he's in a big hat and a big robe, staff and that kind of thing, you know. But, but, but I read about Peter in the, the, the book of Acts and I read about him even as I study his epistles. And I don't, I don't put a big hat on him in a big robe. He's anything but that. Um, as the church develops especially. Peter was on the move. We could could see that. Jesus had said, I need you to go tend sheep. He was on the move. And that made it easy for him, for God to direct him. I always like to say, you can't move a parked car. Can't steer a parked car, excuse me. As an active servant of Christ, Peter once again just finds himself divinely placed in a strategic location, city of Lydda. Largely a Gentile city, about 25 miles from Jerusalem. It had roads from Egypt to Syria. It had roads from Jerusalem to Joppa that that would run through there. Today it's the location of Israel's international airport. But here, Peter finds this one bedridden man which, which kind of shows us his heart. He's, he's out looking for needy people. We know little about Aeneas, how old he was, whether he was a Jew or a, or a Gentile. Um, most likely a Jew is what most people would believe. Probably not a believer. That might have been noted. All that Luke, Dr. Luke tells us is that he has been bedridden for eight years. He's paralyzed And and Peter finds him, and Peter goes to him, and Peter says, Jesus, the Christ, heals you. (laughs) Now remember back in in chapter 3, Peter and John were going to the temple, and there was a lame man there, and they're like, hey, silver and gold, we don't have any of that. But what we do have, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And again here, notice the focal point of Peter. Jesus the Christ heals you by the power of the resurrected 
Christ by his authority when you use his name. That's what you're saying. By his authority and by his power, he heals you. Peter was not about exalting himself as down through the centuries many have exalted Peter. No, he was about exalting Jesus. He was pointing this man to Jesus. He was depending on Jesus. And he was going to be giving credit to Jesus. Jesus had told Peter at one time in John 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as he spoke to the disciples. And Peter was there, as a branch could not bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you're going to bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And, and look at how Peter represents Jesus to this man. Look at his convictions about Jesus as he is in front of this man that was in need. In, in 1 Peter chapter 4, in, in his epistle, Peter would later say, you know, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things... God would be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Now, you couldn't write that and say, that's the focus, everybody, unless that had been your focus in ministry. As Peter was looking at ministries, like divided into a couple of things. Number one, those who speak, those that represent God's word. And then those that would serve uh, the, the, the deacony stuff, the, the, the gifts of help, the gift of mercy, the administration and whatnot. He's like, let it all be done, no matter what it is, through the strength that God supplies, so that in all things God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. Paul understood this principle. In Romans 15, verse 17, he wrote, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by the word of God. So here, to this lame man, Jesus the Christ heals you. And he arose. There was no paralysis. Since the miracle was complete, the healing was complete, he was no longer confined to a bed, Peter's like, hey, get up and make your bed now. So you need to make your bed. And I was reading different guys on this, and Charles Swindoll, he has a great sense of humor. He was commenting on this, and he goes, this was really power. Some of us for years have been saying, arise and make your bed to our teenagers with no results. <laughs> but this was a great miracle. <laughs> but the miracle was, it was powerful. And, and, and the word spread. All who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon, or Sharon there, saw the sky. And they would, they, would, they would turn to the Lord as a result. He was a walking miracle. And I was thinking about, you know, the, the impact on my life. What, what Jesus chose for him was for him, but it was also something he wanted to work through him to touch others. Now, that's just... The highest calling of our life is what 
the Lord has done in me and desires to do through me. And this guy's a walking miracle. If you're born again here, you are a walking miracle. I'm sure when we hear all of these people in this region turning to the Lord, that's hard for us to, to fathom. Because sometimes we look around and, and, and we, get, we get discouraged because we, we see people that we maybe have shared with or people we're around and, and they, they seem to be hardened still to the Lord. But this is just something that, that Peter needed to see, that we need to see 2,000 years later. We need to see what can happen when the power and the grace of God works through our lives. Just, just kind of have a little memo there for Peter. He needed to see this. Those who saw the power of God and the grace of God displayed through this man were themselves now convinced that Jesus was alive. And they realized that they needed to trust him as Savior. Peter needed to just simply see that when I preach Jesus, when I point people to Jesus, when I represent him, his love, his grace, his power, he will not leave people the same. And that person that he transforms becomes a, a living, walking display of the power and the grace and the love of Jesus. And that will impact people. The phrase here, turn to the Lord in the Greek Astravage is the Greek word. It means to turn around. And that, that means that as these, these people were converted themselves, that conversion is not just a changing of your mind. It's a change of life. As with Saul and his conversion in the early part of chapter 9, it's an about face, one belief and behavior to another completely opposite commitment. The life has been changed from one use and function based on one belief system to another use and function and purpose based on another belief system, a new belief system in who Jesus is. Here we see a mass of people that have, that have experienced this, this turning around. We move to Joppa next in verse 36, where it says in verse 36, At Joppa there is now a certain disciple named Tabitha, which was translated Dorcas in the, the Greek there. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and, and she died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to Peter, imploring him to not delay in his coming. Verse 39, then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, 
they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood with him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she is with him. So we, uh, we, we, we move into a new city. We move into another area. This city, Joppa, is the same city um, that the prophet Jonah, when he was like called by God to be used by God, he's like, nah, I'm going to run from God. And he would go to Joppa, which is a port city on the Mediterranean, and he would board a boat in order to flee from God and his calling. And you guys know the story of that. They got it a different plan, and he would end up in the belly of a big fish and whatnot. But God has a way of getting our attention, amen? Don't be Jonah. And, and when you're Jonah, you smell like Jonah, so just uh, know that. But it's interesting, the same city where the prophet Jonah set sail when he was running from the will of God is now a place where Peter makes himself available to God. Jonah went to Joppa in order to avoid going to Gentiles. Because that's where ultimately God wanted him to go, to a Gentile people. But Peter's in Joppa, where he is going to receive a calling to the Gentiles and obediently follow that. As a result of being open and available, that's just who he's been. From Pentecost forward, the new Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, available, open, he once again finds himself divinely placed in front of an individual and her loved ones that are in great need. While Peter was in Lydda there, there was this great strage, or tragedy excuse me, that struck the church in Joppa, one of their more beloved members. Man, just a real, we just love her. <laughs> she just makes the most insane quilts. She just always is bringing, you know, homemade stuff and just, is just a servant, just rolling up the sleeves kind of a gal and just such an asset to the church. She became sick and, 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 and she dies. I find it interesting here as we, we look at the description of her. Um, she's, she's, de she's described as, as a disciple. The word here in the, the Greek is not mathetai for a general use of what we see dominantly used throughout the scripture for the word disciple. There's actually a feminine form of it, and it's mathetria. It's only time it's, it's used. And it's just, it's, it's used here. And, and really when you look at whether it's in the, the feminine form or the masculine form, the idea behind a disciple is, is this. It's an adherent student of Christ. And that's what she's, she's just described as here. A faithful woman, full of good works and charitable, charitable deeds. And that, that, that really should kind of mark all of our lives as believers because in, in Ephesians 2, verse 10, when... Paul is describing who we are now in Christ and we're saved and all. He's like, you know, we are all his workmanship, like a poem being written. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oftentimes when I talk about you know, being converted, being saved, I, I always say that, that God saves you with a purpose in mind. I say that over and over and over because I just think we need to keep remembering and keep connecting those dots. How do you not miss that? That before you, know, you were saved, God chose you. And, and, and in his choosing you, he had an idea of what good work he would produce through your life. He, had just, he knew that. He pre- prepared that beforehand. Paul was saying in Colossians 1 that you may, as believers, have a walk worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. This is Tabitha. This is like, she's the New Testament Proverbs 31 gal, like extending her hand to the poor and, and, and stretching out her hands to the needy and whatnot. And it, it just, it speaks of her heart for the Lord and her heart for people. She loved people. She was caring. She wasn't a, a check writer kind of Christian. She was more like, no, 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 I, I want to I make something. I want to do something. I want to touch the people. I, 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 her generosity was something that just drove her to be connected to people. And her death, man, just a major blow to the church. But what the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, as Job would say. It's just, that's, that's part of it as well. I'm sure that the, the, the believers there were like bummed and grieving and sorrowful, but they had a strong conviction as to where she was, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But they're, 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 they're washing her body and preparing it for burial, as was the custom. And, and Jewish traditions are, are really cool when you start looking at them as it refers to burial because 2,000 years later they're doing things the same way and oftentimes we're traveling around you know the city of Jerusalem and up on the uh, Mount of Olives to the one side of it is this massive graveyard and oftentimes I don't think we've ever been there we're not seeing somebody you know being laid to rest um, by their loved ones and watch them all praying and whatnot and 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 I always talk to the the guides I know and stuff that are believers about the, the challenge it must be when they hear that a loved one dies because they, they really want to bury them on the same day. That's kind of their, their tradition. It's their goal. And just how that, that you get the word and now everyone's got to stop working. And we, we just talk about all that. And yeah, those are the ones that like really love that person. They all like made it to the burial and they're taking part in that. And these people would have been that. He loved Tabitha. But instead of burying her immediately, as was the custom, they laid her body in this upper room. And they send for Peter. Huh. Ah, some serious faith on display here, man. Obviously, that's something else in mind. And they send two of their disciples, and they come to Peter, and like, you need to hurry up. You need to come at, at once. And again, we can only imagine how full Peter's plate was in Lydda when the lame man now is walking around. And, you know, think of just how, how many people Peter was ministering to and as a shepherd now to the sheep, tending and whatnot. But 
you know, Mr. Available, Peter arose and he went with them. Those hearts that are available to God are never going to be too busy to be used by God. When Peter arrived in Joppa, they brought him into the upper room where they had, you know, laid, laid the body of Tabitha. And he would have seen the tears of love, the cries of loss. And all of these from people that she just, she impacted their lives. All the widows of the church stood beside, weeping and showing the things that she had made them. And, and she had blessed people. Her behind-the-scenes ministry was radically effective and impactful. 1 Corinthians 12, 22, the members in the body which seem to be the weaker are necessary, Paul would say when he's giving a, a metaphor there of the church as a body. And the members that we think may be less behind the scenes, now they're honorable. And on these we bestow even greater honor. So verse 40, Peter puts them out and he knelt down and he prayed and he turned to the body and he just said, Tabitha, arise. And an effective ministry does involve faith. This is an incredible act of faith. Peter, of course, had seen Jesus faced with something very, very similar in Mark chapter 5. Jairus, a leader of the synagogue, had taken a risk and approached Jesus because his daughter had, had died when Jesus got to the house. He asked that all the mourners, you know, would would be removed. They were, you know, laughing in, in the, the scorn and all of that. But he, he sent the doubting people outside and he brought in his inner three. Peter was one of them. Peter, James, and John. Peter would have saw this. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And she was dead, but she got up and she was alive. And he's like, get her some food. I don't think that would, like, leave you. You would carry that with you. Yes. Peter, I believe, was doing something he had seen modeled by Jesus. But up until this point in time with the church, none of the disciples had, had seen someone raised from the dead through their ministry. And so this means that not only Peter, but the, the church themselves had radical faith in Jesus. They just believed that Jesus could, could, could do this. So Peter follows Jesus' example and he sends everybody out of the room. Why? Uh, Peter would not put on a display for the crowd in order to maybe draw attention to himself. That might be it. Maybe just wanted a quiet place to pray because he does prayer and pray. And prayer is essential for successful ministry. Prayer, when you see it like this, it's acknowledging dependence on God. Prayer realizes that God 
is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think or, or do. And it's all according to his power that works in us, Ephesians chapter 3. Peter had learned the importance of prayer from Jesus. He had seen him pray many times, seen him go away and have communion with the Father many times. There's a story I have on prayer, and I'll just read it. It says, many years ago, five young college students made their way to London to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. Arriving early at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, they found the doors still locked. While they waited on the steps, a man approached them. Would you like to see the heating apparatus in this church, he asked. Well, that was not why they had come to church, but they agreed to go with him. He led them into the building, down a long flight of stairs into a hallway. At the end of the hallway, he opened a door into a large room filled with 700 people on their knees praying. That, said their guide, who was none other than Spurgeon himself, is the heating apparatus of this church. Peter knew the source of his power, so he, he knelt down and he prayed and then turned to this amazing woman, Tabitha, arise. And verse 40, she opened her eyes and when he, she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, imagine how excited this would have been. He presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. You can imagine the morning being turned into laughter. You can imagine the joy that would just be inexpressible. But God did not raise Tabitha solely for Tabitha or solely for their benefit. God did not raise the lame man solely for his benefit, or for the benefit of those that would see the miracle and then turn their life over to Christ. All of that was like huge. And you might even say further conversion might be the most significant aspect of all of that. But this was also, as we said earlier, Something that God was doing to impact and alter the life of Peter, who God was going to send to a group of people that Peter had issues with. That Peter had a, had a strong opinion about. That Peter would not go to. That Peter would not want to brush up against. From the day of Pentecost to chapter 10, when Peter will find himself in the house of a Gentile and the first Gentiles will be saved, 10 years will have taken place. What was it that was happening in the life of Peter that would take him from the attitude that we saw even before the resurrection of Christ. Because before then, Peter was this presumptuous guy, this proud guy. 
this guy that when he and the other disciples saw Jesus at a well in Samaria, it blew their mind that he would even be going through Samaria because of all of these half-breeds here that could defile us. It blew his mind that he was talking to a, a woman and they knew that she was there in the middle of the day because she was an immoral woman. And, and this is all like defiling stuff. That's who Peter was before the cross, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is a guy who, no matter what Jesus was saying about his own personal mission and about the cross, Peter, he always had his view and his opinion that everybody needed to understand and, and really consider and, and follow, even Jesus. That's why Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God. That's the Peter before the cross, burial, and resurrection. And now we, we, we see this guy. He's, he's the, the, this attitude that needs to change towards others. This attitude that needs to change to the degree that he would have the attitude in the heart of God because that is what's going to sustain this work down through the centuries all the way to 2020 and sustain the church through a pandemic and allow the church to stay united together as one, the bond of love in Jesus Christ, the attitude in the heart of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to sustain the church through a pandemic and beyond a pandemic until the day that the Lord comes home for his bride. And it would take some time for Peter to get this, and it takes some time for us to get this. He was a well-intentioned but self-sufficient, presumptuous man that would even say, Lord, you're talking about all these people that will forsake you. I will never forsake you. I will lay down my life for you. That was Peter before the cross. You're going to deny me three times. No. But he would be the man that would deny the Lord. But he would learn from his mistakes. He would be the man that would go down into the the depths of disparity because he denied the Lord three times before he was crucified that night. But Peter learned firsthand the emptiness of relying on the flesh and falling back into the flesh. And he learned the necessity and the sufficiency of being filled with and empowered by and led by the Spirit of God. Peter was in no means a perfect man. And one of his biggest imperfections at this particular point in time in his life, where God is using him, where he's pointing people to Jesus, he still had an attitude problem. He had an attitude towards the Gentiles. In this particular time, Hebrews, which he was, Jews, which he was, still despised the, gen, the, 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 the non-Jews, the Gentiles, wouldn't eat with them, wouldn't associate with them, spoke horribly about them, labeled them, called them goyim, which is the nations, 
There's us, then there's the nations. And they would say it with spite, with indifference. Jewish midwives were forbidden to aid a Gentile woman in childbirth, for they would therefore be helping propagate Gentile scum. That's how they looked at it. At this point, we noted in Christianity, the church itself was mainly distinctly Jewish. In Peter's case, despite all of his love and devotion for Christ, his ungodly attitude and prejudice could have strangled his ministry and could have reduced Christianity to just another sect of Judaism. He would have been just like all of the religious, other religious people. And, and the Gentiles had had it with all of the other religious people. And I, I believe today that, 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 that people who don't, don't understand who Jesus is, don't understand us, don't understand the church, we, we've got to ask ourselves how we're interacting with them. How we're, what is our attitude towards them? And if circumstances in society and politics in society and pandemics that are wreaking havoc on society are, are, are forming and shaping my attitude to where I'm showing indifference towards them or even others in the body of Christ, then that is going to be a stranglehold on the ministry of Jesus Christ. That is going to stop the ministry of Jesus Christ as far as working through my life dead in its tracks. What if right now the Lord had someone that you are completely polar opposite with in mind and, and they, they looked at the rest of the church and they're like, man, the church is just so against me because of my political beliefs or my social beliefs or whatever. But the Lord's like, no, 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 I want you to reach them. But maybe your political views are different than them. Maybe your social views are different than them. What do you think Jesus would want to put on display if he put you in front of them? He would want you to put him on display. That lame man could care less about Peter's traditions. That lame man could care less about Peter's political views. He could care less about his views about pandemics. All he knew that he needed was a, I needed a touch. Whatever it was, he found Jesus, and I guarantee you, as he walked around town, that was what he was about. There was no question, because others turned to Jesus. Peter saw that with Tabitha. He would, he would see this. God could not allow this attitude of indifference 
to continue in the life of Peter. God could not allow that, so he began to help Peter develop a proper attitude towards the whole world, even towards those that did not line up with his standards. The, 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 the stakes are just as high today. How we, our attitude is towards others, it's crucial. So God, I believe, used both of these positive ministry experiences to impact the attitude of Peter. First with the layman in Lydda, and then with Tabitha in Joppa, the power of God that Peter had seen work through his life in order to make a man walk that was lame and to raise a woman that was dead back to life. Two back-to-back ministry experiences that I believe became significant factors in shaping his attitude towards the world. Listen, because both of these experiences happened in Gentile settings. Hmm. The miracle was performed on Jews among Jews, I believe. But the environments of Lydda and Joppa were Gentile. God's power was working through Peter in a very pagan environment among the Goyim, the other nations, that he would have looked at and spoke at with disdain. All of this together began to soften the prejudice in his heart. He was doing Christ's work away from Jerusalem and doing it in the midst of the defiling dirt and grit of the Gentile culture. Allowing the Lord to work through our lives can go miles in rearranging our attitude. After raising Tabitha from the dead, Peter stayed in Joppa some time with a tanner by the name of Simon. We could just brush over that, but, but this is something I believe Peter, if he didn't see God working in those regions, he would not have stayed with a, with a tanner. This place of business, highly unpleasant, smelly, animals were slain, they were, they were looked down upon, they were ostracized, and, and they had to stay outside of the community. Rabbinical law stated that if a betrothed woman discovered that her husband or future husband was to be a tanner, that she could break that arrangement, they were just kind of bottom feeder people in the eyes of the Jews. And now Peter is living with this tanner. God is at work in this impulsive heart. Doing what? 
working in his grace, changing his attitudes towards those that don't live up to his standards. The old biases, they needed to be broken down. God has a way of softening our prejudices if we are the least bit willing to learn. Peter's attitude toward the world was mellowing out. And a bigger change is about to come. And that's where we'll be next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the examples that we have here in your word of grace on display. Thank you for changing lives and attitudes down through the ages to where where we could see Christ in the people who shared Christ with us. And Lord, that's, I believe, your desire for us today and for, for this church, that we would be known not as individuals that would be laying out our standards. And if people meet our standards, but we would be laying out yours. May we, may we see the significance of this and, and the significance of, of, of how in the church right now we, we cannot be effective in helping a sick world if we ourselves have attitudes that are just wrong. It's just so cool to see even the church there in Judea and the surrounding areas. They just had a, a season of peace and they feared you. And there was the, the building up, the edifying of one another. And that with, with people that just were so different and coming from so many different backgrounds. Lord, help us today to see how important that is. Thank you for radically altering Peter's life. What a witness. What hope we glean from that and gain from that. Please, Lord, use us. Use this church as a beacon of your grace towards one another and towards the world that is yet to find you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, I went long. Let's all stand. And um, we'll see you Wednesday night at the uh, Advent service. About face. We're going military. You have to leave. God bless you. We'll see you soon.